Welcome to the Healing Center Conversations podcast, where we create space for conversations that heal. I'm your host, Dr. Byron McClure, a nationally certified school psychologist. I, along with our special guests, will give you insight to promote collective healing by putting people first. Through weekly conversations with educators, psychologists, and healers, we'll discuss ways to heal, thrive, and live your best life. This is the Healing Center Conversations Podcast. Welcome to the Healing Center Conversations Podcast, where we create space for conversations that heal. I'm your host, Dr. Byron McClure, and today we have a very special guest in the virtual building, Alexandria Lockhart. How are you feeling today? Hello, hello. A little nervous, but good to be here. Yeah, I know it's okay to be a little <laughs> nervous, but you have a big message and I can't wait for the people to hear it and for you to share your story with us. Um, Thank you. Of course. So Alexandria is a school psychologist in New York City, a Southern California native and a graduate of CSU Long Beach and Azusa Pacific University. She is a firm advocate for police-free schools and racial equity and special education. Once again, welcome to the Healing Center Conversations podcast. <laughs> Thank so, you. Thanks for and having me. Of course, of course, as we get started, for those who don't know, who is Alexandria Lockhart? That's such a hard question all the time to answer, you know, because human beings are so complex and layered. I'm complex and layered. I would say the first thing that comes to my mind is that I am a rose that grew from concrete. I have gone through a lot of tribulations in my life, health-wise. Shout out to my dad for donating his kidney to me, giving me a second chance at life. And you know, now that I'm on the other side of that, I'm able to breathe and it's just my pers- it's been my personal mission to just like enjoy life. I am a sister, I am a daughter, I am a friend and that's really, that's kind of, that's the gist, I would say, amongst so a lot of other things. But Yeah, that's a, that's a lot. And that's a really big thing to have received a kidney from your father. Yes. Yes. Wow. Very big. Yeah. It was in 2017. So I was in my last semester of grad school. When it all happened, I was in the hospital for a month. Didn't know what was going on. Didn't know what was wrong with me. Went through a whole bunch of tests. They figured out that both my kidneys failed uh, due to an autoimmune disorder that I didn't even know I had. And it caused 95% damage to both my kidneys. Um, I ended up being on dialysis for 18 months and um, found out my dad was a perfect match. And so, yeah, got a second chance at life. Thanks, Dan. That's such a blessing. And with this second chance at life that you have, like, what are some of the things that are near and dear for you to to tackle as you're approaching the second chance at life? Well, definitely the overrepresentation of, of Black students um, in special education. That has become a huge passion of mine since grad school. My professor, shout out to Dr. Pedro Overa, he actually introduced me to a lot of the racial inequities in special education when I was in my program. And so I did my master's thesis on you know discipline disparities in schools, and it just not only shocked me, but just enraged me. And I was just like, this has been happening for way too long and something needs to change. I mean, our, our students have been suffering for so long and 
it was important to me that once I became a school psychologist that I wanted to be a part of the solution and not the problem. Yeah, and I'm I'm interested to hear if you got interested in these issues while you were in graduate school, or I know you're from, from sunny Southern California, or were these things that you were aware of and you were interested in tackling back then? Was it a, a combination of both? Honestly, it was grad school. Before going to grad school, I had no idea what a school psychologist was. I was actually a preschool teacher at the time. And yes, I was a preschool teacher and one of my students um, was being evaluated and I had to attend the meeting. And I was like, who is this person talking? Like, what does she do? This sounds really cool. And so I found out she was a school psychologist and I just started asking her all these questions, did my own research. And I was like, so these people existed when I was in school like had no idea, never even heard of them when I was in school. So I just like did my research and really just gravitated towards entering the field, applied to grad school, got in. And so here I am. That's really neat. And so you went to graduate school and Mm -hmm. after graduate school, you become a practicing school psychologist and you're also a writer as well. And I read one of your articles that you did back in 2021, I guess the spring of 2021, in Chalkbeat, where you outlined an experience with a student in your school and the police unfortunately got involved. So if you could walk us through what happened in that situation. Yeah. So I was in my office writing the lovely psychoeducational report. Got a bang on my door. One of the teachers, there's two teachers in that classroom. So one of them ran to my office and was like, the new student, you know, that we have, she's tearing the class up. And I was like, okay, let me stop what I'm doing. So I went to the classroom. The student had a paraprofessional. The student started like tossing over the desks, throwing items at other students. And so at that point, the teachers and the rest of the class left the classroom. And so it was just me and the paraprofessional. Um, we seem to be handling the situation pretty well, you know, not really engaging with the student based on the student's behavior plan. You know, she had a lot of, she would get triggered a lot with when she was already escalated when people would be talking to her. So we minimized, you know, giving her redirections. And then all of a sudden she ran out of the classroom. At that point, I was like, I have no idea what this homegirl is about to do because she was new to our school. So, you know, I did read her paperwork, but it never said anything about her running out of the classroom. So she just ran through the hallway. We were able to like redirect her to an empty classroom. At that point, you know, she was kind of calming down. She was just sitting, not saying anything. And the office administration kept asking me like, do you need support? Are you okay? And I was like, I'm good guys. Like it's totally fine. I've done this before. And then at some point, I don't know what was going on in the background when I was focused on the student, but all of a sudden I just remember turning around and seeing two police officers enter into classroom. And I was like, what are they doing here? And I looked at the secretary and I was like, why are they here? And And she was like, what grade was this student in? Second grade. A second grade student. Second grade, okay. yes. And I was like, well, why are they here? And she was like, oh, well, it's part of protocol. And I was like, what protocol? I was like, she's a student with a disability. Like, her classification is emotional disturbance. Like, this is part of her disability. Like, I'm not, I didn't need any extra support. I told you guys this. So anyways, you know, I'm trying to tell them this is a student with a disability. This is a part of her disability. Um, I said she is new to us. So this is the first time we're seeing this. However, there's documentation, you know, that she's done this before. They totally did not listen to me, started talking to the student. I tried to tell them, please don't talk to her. You're you're going to re-escalate her. 
you know, because this is a trigger for her. She's not fully at her baseline yet. Did not listen to me. Started talk, kept talking to her. Then she kicked one of them. Then all of a sudden, at least five other police officers come into the room. And she kicked one of the police officers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At this point, I'm livid. And then another one tried to talk to me to tell me what happened. At this point, I have an attitude and I'm like, I've literally told two officers already what happened. You need to go and ask your colleagues. Like my job is to focus on the student. At this point, she's kind of like crouched on the floor. Two, three of them are now like hovering over her while she's sitting down and they're trying to, you know, take her to the hospital. I'm like, take her to the hospital for what? For like a psychiatric evaluation. And I'm just like, this is not the protocol. This is not what we're supposed to be doing. Basically my voice was, (laughs) I could have just been a silent fly on the wall. Nobody listened to me. They ended up taking her to the hospital. I was very angry about it for the rest of the day for a long time afterwards. And I knew at that point, that's not somewhere where I wanted to continue working. Yeah. And thank you for for sharing that example. And unfortunately, that's a situation that happens to young students, especially uh, racially minoritized youth across the country, and especially those students with disabilities. In this situation, I mean, the student had you, someone, attempting to advocate on their behalf, which is is terrible that we're in these positions, but which is why we need people like you advocating for these issues. I'm interested to hear from your perspective, especially because this was a student with a documented disability, like you're trying to convey ways to handle it in that scenario. But what are some alternatives to police and schools? Well, first, increasing the amount of mental health professionals. Yes. <laughs> um, that is, I would say, the number one alternative, you know, because I've had this discussion with other colleagues and a lot of the issues that we're seeing in schools are products of what has been happening in society in our community. You know, had if there were, you know, community centers, if there were actual high paying jobs, you know, available to families, we wouldn't have families working multiple jobs, you know, where students are trying to gain attention or get involved in things that, you know, are not so good for them. Um, And so a lot of the things that are happening outside you know, in the community are being transferred over to the school. And I think that sometimes when the number one alternative would be to increase mental health professionals in the school and to increase our training, right, in trauma-informed practices, anti-racist practices, more healing-centered practices. I think when we come from a place that asks what happened to you, I think it would change a lot of things um, in our school environment. I'm still reading up on, you know, all, all of the alternatives to having police in school. So I'm not an expert in this area just yet. But I would, you know, being that I am a school psychologist, I think we need more of us in our schools. And so that's, I would say that's the first, the most important, I would say, to include an alternative to policing in schools. Yeah, that's a big one. And just imagine where you were there and able to speak up on behalf of that student. Because of the shortage of school psychologists in a lot of places, there's no school psychologist who might have been in that building that day. And so it would have been even easier for, you know, police or for disciplinary consequence to happen to students such as the the young second grader who you work with. And so uh, without a doubt, I think that's something that's important. One thing that I would love for you to talk about 
Uh, I recently watched a conference with you. And for those who don't know, I've been following you on social media for a while. I'm a fan of your work and your voice and the things that that you speak out against. And so I don't, and this is just a, a true fact, like I don't attend that many conferences to where I'm listening but I made it a point to do more because I can always learn more, sharpen my skills and learn from others in the field. And I saw that you were going to be speaking mm-hmm. at a conference uh, hosted by uh, the New York Association mm-hmm. of School Psychologists. Yeah. Yes. I was like, you know, let me let me go check this out. <laughs> and I started listening to your webinar and I was blown away. You were saying all the things and you had the stats, you had the data, you gave a history (laughs) of how white supremacy is showing up in the field. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting back like, whoa, (laughs) this is, this is all right. Like I I, I rock with her. Um, So I would love if you could break it down for our listeners of how white supremacy shows up in schools or in the field of school psychology? Yes. So white supremacy can show up in school psychology through assessment as the standardized tests we use are rooted in eugenics. We all know what that is. Essentially, white individuals categorizing themselves, you know, to be more intellectual, more strong, um, just overall better, right, than people that they classified as other or different than themselves. It also shows up in consultation through implicit bias, microaggressions, and stereotypes, as well as interventions, counseling methods due to the omission of both cultural and ethnic influences. It also shows up through school psychology research as majority of the research participants are white individuals, usually middle class. Also shows up in school psych programs because curriculums are very Eurocentric centered. That's right. um, They're also ableist as well, right? It's coming from this idea that we are here to save students with disabilities, that we know what's best for them instead of them knowing what's best for themselves. Through also developmental theories, the demographics of school psychology, right, does not accurately reflect society and the school populations we work with. A lot of school psychologists are still white, where the majority of the student population is Black, Indigenous, Latino, or other students of color. Also through special education laws, such as IDEA and the No Child Left Behind Act, which actually exacerbated racial um, inequities. That's that's pretty much the gist of how white supremacy shows up in school psychology. Yeah, and I, I absolutely loved how you called those things out and then walked through each one of those instances and then really show, you know, these are things that we can do in our field to begin mm-hmm. addressing it. Um, and then you wrote another article, and in that article you said, because it's so clear to me, when the most vulnerable population of students are empowered, the school communities are empowered. <clears throat> and to do that, we need school psychologists who will shake the table, even if it breaks. School psychologists who have a quiet fearlessness, who speak up loud, even if their voices shakes, and school psychologists who have unbridled passion to create effective change now. Yo, that's a bar. Can can you break that down for us? Yes. So when I talk about shaking the table and education, you know, for so long, we have many people who have sat at the table and proposed 
the same ideas, reforms, beliefs, all to uphold the status quo. And we have seen for so long that the status quo does not work. And so we need school psychologists to make active change and speak up about issues that directly impact the students we work with, even if it makes others uncomfortable, right? It's time that we like shake the table, like forget all this status quo nonsense and really let's do what's best for the students we work with. Um, When I talk about a quite fearlessness, it's about school psychs moving forward in action, right? With standing up for what is right and meeting the challenges ahead of them. It reminds me of the quote, a strong woman looks at a challenge dead in the eye and gives it a wink. But in this instance, right, it's anyone who's a school psychologist and we cannot be afraid, right? Current policies and systems have made the students we work with more vulnerable and suffer. And so why should we be complacent in that? We should speak up about it and, you know, make their lives better. I love that on so many different levels. And I'm going to start using a quiet fearlessness. And that really seems to, like, you seem like the type to shake the table. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But if you have to, and you have this quiet fearlessness about you, and I, I absolutely think that's remarkable. And Thank what you're you. doing is just exceptional. Like I'm, I'm a fan. Um, <laughs> you talk about in some of your work a liberation psychology. Can you break down what is a liberation psychology for those who might not be familiar? All right. So liberation psychology is an approach to psychology that examines the ways in which oppression impacts the lives of mar- socially marginalized individuals. So the goal is to promote change, to relieve the suffering and improve the lives of those individuals who are oppressed. So, you know, the psychology that we're used to is very Eurocentric focused. It's very individualized. It just focuses on the person and what's wrong with them. And so liberation psychology focuses on what happened to you, what societal systems have impacted you, have oppressed you. And it helps individuals to understand how they have been oppressed and what ways that oppression shows up in their lives and then how to improve their lives, you know, despite the oppression that has impacted them. Yeah. And I think liberation psychology can be a very useful practice for those really not just in the field of school psychology, but mental health professionals mm-hmm. all over. And so in your perspective, how do you think mental health professionals, especially school psychologists, can apply principles of liberation psychology into their practice? I think mental health professionals can apply principles of liberation psychology into their practice by helping students with disabilities understand the mechanisms of oppression as it relates to their race, disability, and social class, whether that's through counseling or whether school psychologists have an opportunity to teach a class on this information in schools. I think that would be really helpful. Also conducting PDs for colleagues um, in schools to understand the role of history and how it has shaped the conditions of the communities we work with as well as school psychologists graduating students from special education services at a much higher rate than qualifying them based on, of course, data and need, not just because we feel like it, because that would be great, but that's not the world we live in. And also, you know, writing stuff like this in their reports, right? Just like our students are so complex, I think it's important to add this sort of information in to talk about how the oppression in the education system has impacted their disability, impacted their ability to engage in the classroom, because we know that schools for so long have been violent for Black and Brown children. Absolutely. And what we're talking about here are sometimes viewed by 
certain demographics as controversial, as tough issues, as there's no place for it. But we all know that there's a need. Otherwise, we wouldn't be wasting our, our breath on it. Have you received any pushback? And if not, like, why do you think it's important for, for us to speak out on these issues? Luckily, I have not received any pushback. But even if I did, that would just fuel me to speak louder. I just don't think it's necessary to subscribe to making others uncomfortable when me and my people have been uncomfortable for a very long time. I know that's right. Look, <laughs> you better talk about it. Alexandria, this is the Healing Centered Conversations podcast. And I would love to hear on a personal level, what does healing mean to you? What a question. Personally, healing to me means being becoming healthy again, whether that's physically, mentally, or spiritually. You know, through trauma or pain, it changes us. Sometimes it shatters us into many pieces. And sometimes it leaves us feeling unlike ourselves, empty, confused, lost. And when we heal, those shattered pieces come back together into this sort of beautiful mosaic right? So to speak. And then we figure out how to navigate, you know, with that new, new picture of us. That's, that's what healing is to me. I think I literally just got goosebumps. <laughs> like that's, that's powerful. Really, really powerful. Any closing thoughts that you will offer to our listeners? Not that I can think of. All right. Can how can people... Of. Cool, cool. How can people find you on social media or get in touch with you? They can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Allie Locke. That's A-L-L-I-E-E-L-O-C-K. Also at my website where I just write these random articles and thoughts on special education is dralockhart.wordpress.com. Very cool. Alexandria, thank you for this healing sense of conversation to our listeners. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you follow us across all social media platforms at Healing Convo Pod. Until next time, take care, everyone.